academia is a is a place that, that that's that's um, set in a scarcity framework, right? So so people are competing for limited resources. They're very aware of it. It's very hierarchical. You know all these things, but all of those things are not just affecting how many hours people work. They are affecting the questions that they ask. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Today, we had uh, an amazing conversation to dive into with Amy Cuddy, the famous Harvard psychologist, the author of the book Presence, and uh, the speaker for one of the most viral TED Talks on embodiment and power posing of all time. We cover everything, really. It was a wild and free-ranging conversation from her feelings and perspectives on that, literally how we hold our bodies affects our hearts and minds, but then also some of her personal story, which goes that actually that red circle of carpet that she stood on at the TED stage became a giant red bullseye on her back. And she actually endured five years of all kinds of very public and professional conflict, scorn, controversy, personal attacks that actually led her to experience what she shared perhaps for the first time publicly as complex PTSD. And that then directed her to her new book that she's working on, Bullies, Bystanders and Brave Hearts. And this notion of what do we do when we gang up on each other and how can we as decent people actually take a stand for ourselves and each other in the face of unkindness and conflict. And then Amy also shared her personal passion for dance, for embodiment, uh, and her, her secret life or not so secret life as a deadhead, as a follower of the Grateful Dead, the band, and how those experiences of ecstatic, joyful, communal celebration uh, together with music in some improvisational form actually formed the foundation of her academic career and inquiry into embodied cognition. So check it out. It's a, it's a fantastic romp and lots of awesome things from Amy Cuddy. Amy Cuddy, professor at Harvard Business School, author of the global sensation presence and the speaker for one of the most widely shared viral TED Talks of all time on the power of embodiment to change our minds and our lives. Uh, welcome to Homegrown Humans. Great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been following your work for ages because some of the central theses that you've been articulating that specifically how we hold our bodies and how we treat and integrate and vitalize our bodies plays a profound effect further up the stack, you know, in our emotions, in, in our presentation, and even how we interact as social creatures. And so just curious as to, um, since, since you gave that talk, since you wrote Presence, um, where, where, where's your thesis now? What, what, is your, what is your kind of current state of that relationship between the physical um, and the psychological? I guess it's funny. I, I guess I would say the, uh, the idea that being expansive changes the way we feel is more expansive than I had originally thought. Right. So, so it's, it's so much more than, you know, standing with your hands on your hips or standing in the victory pose. It, it really, the idea that carrying ourselves in a way that is more expansive and it's a continuum, right? It's not, it's not, you know, um, categorical. You're not either contractive or expansive. It's, it's some continuum, but, 
there are so many dimensions on which we can expand that go beyond you know our arms and legs even our, our voices can be more or less expansive our breathing can be more or less expansive our really it, it it's also self-reinforcing so to the extent that our thinking is more expansive i think that that we become even more expansive and the world expands to us uh so it's just so much broader and and deeper than i had originally thought hmm. and then so and so just clarify because i know that you know your research was both massively intriguing to the general public you know it was something that felt very human very empowering and then there was also that you know the, the back and forth within the surrounding academic disciplines is like, well, is it true? How true is it? Can we repeat and replicate these experiments? That the questions of do certain postures shift our endocrine or hormonal balances, specifically things like testosterone, like dopamine, all of that kind of stuff. So where's the state of the field now? What, what are the things that you are kind of comfortable um, saying that we're sort of getting to some at least provisional consensus on what's actually going on in that expansion under the hood? I don't know. I, so the neurophysiology, and that's the, the truth is that has been the hardest to replicate and also I think the most complicated uh, for other reasons. So um, if I can back up a minute, just to say that the, the, the effect that replicates again and again and again mm -hmm. is that expanding versus contracting causes people to feel more powerful, more assertive, more confident. And that's been replicated in you know pre-registered studies by the greatest skeptics. So we can feel very confident about that effect, that it is changing the way we feel. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, I would say our, our psychological orientation toward others, toward ourselves, toward the world more broadly, what are the underlying physiological or, or you know, sociocultural mechanisms? We don't know for sure. The hormones effects that you're referring to uh, that we found in the, the first study that we published were that adopting an expansive um, kind of everyday, what we call the power pose, uh, like standing with your hands on your hips and your feet apart or in the victory pose or, or, or sitting with your feet up in your desk and your, your arms you know, behind your head like this. Mm -hmm. um, adopting that pose versus a more contractive pose like this caused increases in circulating levels of, of testosterone and decreases in circulating levels of cortisol. So you're, you're seeing an increase in what, what people casually kind of refer to as the dominance hormone and a decrease in what people refer to as one of the stress hormones. That effect was not replicated in follow-up studies, um, was replicated in some unpublished follow-up studies so all I guess what I can say is theoretically where we were coming from making that prediction I I think is sound I still it makes mm -hmm. it makes sense to me given what we know about the relationship between power and those two hormones in particular mm -hmm. um, I doubt you know I'm, I'm I'm skeptical that it was just a fluke um, especially given that it was a, a theoretically grounded scientific hypothesis. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But another thing that's changed dramatically since then, and that, that was like 10 years ago that we did yeah. that study, uh, is that hormone measurement has become, I'd say, much more advanced than it was then. You know, hormone measurement is not squarely in the area of social psychology. So social psychologists studying hormones, you know, are... are are sort of borrowing from another field, although, yeah. you know, we can get into blurred lines between fields and we don't, do we need these like sort of narrowly defined fields at all, but we're borrowing from another field. And I think we're waiting for them to, uh, to, to really kind of pound out the best way to measure these hormones before people sort of dive back into it. So I, th I think there was like an early dive into that area, just as there was with fMRI research yep. in social psychology. And then people kind of pulled back. I think researchers said, wait, we've got a lot to learn about how to do this well. And let's mm -hmm. wait for the people who are more centrally doing that research to get those those methods down before we go back into it. So I don't know. And, and mm -hmm. honestly, I'm not doing, I'm not a primary researcher anymore in that area. So I'll be curious to see what other people find. Mm -hmm. uh, what I do know is that there are a lot of people looking at clinical interventions. So using this idea that changing the way we carry ourselves physically and you know, more specifically being expansive versus contractive, when does it work? What are the moderating variables? You know, when, when is, when is uh, a big expansive pose too much? Mm -hmm. uh, AKA man spreading. Yeah. <laughs> is that you're like, that's too much. Yeah, Just you know, walk that back. I mean, certainly I've always said you don't want to go into a job interview standing like a superhero. That's not the time to do it, right? That's because then you, you're not just affecting the way you feel. You're also affecting the way the person who perceives you, who's looking at you feels about you. But I think that, that figuring out when, where, for whom, under what circumstances, that those questions are all the things that people are digging into now so that they can adapt that general idea uh, for uh, interventions, for, for mm -hmm. treatments, for people struggling with things like post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that reminds me of something like Bessel van der Kolk's Body Keeps the Score and his theories of trauma research and just, you know, I'm always interested in cutting edge stuff. And then it's also sort of both affirming and always a little disappointing when people are like, bright breathing yoga you know like, these I things know, are amazing know. you know and, and it's a little bit like those like the japanese studies on forest bathing and all this like do we really need to bend over backwards to say that getting outside in beautiful nature is a good thing like there's some sort of validation of the obvious and even if the validations maybe stumble or get erratic results due to procedural issues or measurement issues it doesn't it doesn't undermine the core common sense that every military every yogic tradition every martial art every dance you know tradition like all know which is that we emote and express throughout physical forms and there's a feedback loop of course right and 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 it's funny you say it's so obvious but um and, and that's how i feel you know i was a professional ballet dancer you know dance is all about communicating through your body. And certainly as a somebody who danced for many, many hours a day, I, I was fully aware of how holding myself in a different way affected the way I felt. Yeah. Um, but it's weirdly not intuitive to some people. And, you know, I would say one of my most um, vociferous critics really felt like it made no sense and and that we could have hypothesized the exact opposite that coiling up like a snake you know 
in a tiny pose could have made us feel more powerful. And, and I, that made no sense to me. I couldn't even imagine how you would get there. And it started to make me wonder if people who are critical a little bit out of touch with their own, um, you know, physical experience. And, yeah. and they really, even if it is affecting them, they, they are just not aware of it. And so they can't even imagine it. And it kind of like I imagine somebody sitting behind a computer all the time looking at the words, you know, they're writing on the screen and thinking that 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 is a reflection of my thoughts and also um, a, a cause of my words are a cause of my thoughts. But but it's all sort of externalized as opposed to thinking this is a you know, this is a system that's that's integrated. Mm-hmm. And uh and of course, your body's affecting the way you feel, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And in fact, that that, that brings to mind. Uh, do you know Andrew Huberman at Stanford? He's a neuroscientist there. I don't. Okay, no. so he he's a he's a good friend, and he just published in Nature this spring, actually, a fascinating study they did with mice and what they call the let's think the startle response. Basically, the they do the shadow of the bird of prey. And uh-huh. then the and then the mouse goes into basically a power posture or not, and and of course, ninety two percent of the time they flee, um, and then they might freeze, um, and that and they and they actually did like uh, optogenetic testing to actually understand that from the amygdala it's not fight or flight like that's the, it rhymes right, but it's actually right. two different pathways and there's the there's the freeze or flee pathway which goes through this little zone called the xiphoid nucleus and then there's the stand and deliver courage pathway which goes through the nucleus reunions and actually teasing these apart and then the fascinating thing that i found was just that when the mice were given the option between food and stimulating the nucleus reunions i.e courage they chose it it was actually it was it was objectively pleasurable for them to feel empowered. That's amazing. I did Isn't not it? know about that study. There were some studies a few years ago uh, that were looking at the relationship between engagement of the core muscles mm. and um, you know neural pathways that 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 cause people to feel more confident and more calm. And I mm. thought that was really interesting because uh, you know. You certainly you think about things like yoga and, and Pilates again, and the importance of that core engagement in expansiveness, right? So you're not expanding, expanding from your fingertips inward, mm-hmm. you're expanding from your core outward. And so I thought that was really another whole other pathway that we had not been thinking about. Right. So, you know, thinking about the hormonal responses, they may or may not be linked to that, but this was, mm-hmm. this was a different, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a different, mechanism and i i think yeah. there's so you know again back to there's just so much more to look at uh mm-hmm. when we're going inward to really figure out what's happening to what extent is this a learned association that mm-hmm. gets primed when we do it ourselves uh to what extent is this just completely hardwired and and if so why and when and and who does it and who doesn't do it yeah, and that whole notion of us just being disembodied heads on sticks these days, and our motor patterns are interrupted, our postural, you know, uh, you know, habitual postures are, are junk, you know, for bad air exchange, poor alignment, all these kind of things. And 
I mean, basically everything you're describing, I'm sure you learned as a dancer, it absolutely shows up in martial arts, which is moved from an engaged pelvic floor, a firing pyramidalis, you know, and, and a core that is fully integrated, AKA, you know, in Japanese martial arts, your hara, in, in Chinese martial arts, your dantian, you know, but basically two fingers back and two fingers down from your belly button, like if you center from there and you're what your proprioceptive and, and vestibular awareness are coming from there, you move very differently than if you're just a bowling ball teetering along on a delivery vehicle for your brain. You know? Absolutely. And, and right. So, it, but it, it, isn't it interesting to think about it? So I, I think about this expansiveness in a, in a very visible sort of, when I, when I talk about expanding the body, mm -hmm. I think, the image that that is conjured is of the the appendages being out away from the body but wouldn't it be fascinating if actually it's really all about that 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 very tiny little center core it, it, you know it, in our core right that it's actually coming from that as opposed to uh you know our appendages being extended um, yeah, yeah. interesting yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated right now. I'm actually, I've just written a chapter in my, my next book about this very thing, which was, um, it started with, you must know Paul Baki Rita's work at, yeah. at Madison, right? And so um, some colleagues of ours, it was basically all about trans, translingual electrical stimulation. Uh -huh. straight into the tongue to the cranial nerves and then um, that's now gone to market it's in phase three clinical trials and one of our buddies is a neuroscientist in vancouver who's been leading that research and what they found was it was profound just that stimulation of the trigeminal nerve via direct electric current a it goes in through the tongue and straight to the brainstem, straight to um, the medulla oblongata straight to the palms and even though they were only stimulating one or two nerves at a time. It was working for MS, it was working for traumatic brain injury, but then they also found that there was a global system reset that was happening. So even though they're only specifically targeting like the trigeminal or something like that, it was actually cascading. And they, they described it as, you know, similar to a computer that's getting all glitchy that's been on for a week and you just do the cold reboot and it oh. powers back up. And so that idea that sort of tip to tail from our core brainstem down to the end of our vagus nerve, right? Is this sort of metronomic centering of our physiology and our psychology? Would, I, I'm, I'm just been fascinated by that. And I've also been fascinated by the latest research on the endocannabinoid system, which seems to, you know, it's an inflammation, it's organ regulation, it's a bilateral right. signaling and communication device. It's a thousand things. And so do you have any any working model of the integration between central nervous system, brainstem, vagus nerve, and endocannabinoid system? Because it really feels like somewhere in there is the, is the root code to trauma integration. I, I don't. I, I feel like that, that's, that goes beyond my, my expertise. Okay. Um, and, and it's, I mean, you've referred to a lot of the people who I, I would probably have referred uh -huh. you to, yeah. I mean, including Bessel van der Kolk, of course. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, and I, you know, I, I think that even what we knew two years ago is so different from what we know now. It seems like it's happening at lightning speed, mm -hmm. the, the, the accumulation of knowledge around these kinds of feedback systems. But I, I'm sorry, I can't, okay. I can't speak to that. No worries. I'm happy for you to be explaining what, what's happening in it, but I can't yeah. really speak to it, which I, okay. it makes me sad. 
And I, and I think it's kind of an interesting little area to talk about to say, if we are, if we have no tolerance for nuance, um, that's really going to thwart science. Oh, for sure. And it almost, it almost sounds like what you just described as the moderator epithet is, is basically the academic equivalent of tone policing. Don't you tone police me? And it's like, oh, for yeah, fuck's sake, if, if we're completely immersed in a conversation that we're not actually a subject, like object aware of the, the structure of it or why it's going this way, and someone points that out, and then that's considered a microaggression, and you're not even allowed to do that because I think I'm going to win down here in the basement. So I'm going to drag you back down here where I can beat on you some more. Yeah, it's thankless. Yeah, I, well, I mean, it's it's it, it is sort of categorical. Another 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 version of categorical thinking too. I mean, I think that 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 everything is about camps now, and um, you can't you and and I would say almost like fundamentalism, right? So if you don't subscribe to the you know all of the fundamentals uh, um, that go along with this camp or this category, um, you're out. And you can't be in the other one e either, right? So if you even challenge the camp that you're perceived to be in, you are kicked out. The only right response at that time in my field, when someone said, well, this didn't replicate, and so obviously this follow-up study is right and your original study is wrong, the only acceptable response was, I am so sorry, please forgive me. I must be a terrible researcher. You know, I, 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 I will distance myself from that research. I'm so sorry anyone ever read it. And I, I didn't believe that yeah. about our research. And so I wasn't going to say that. And I also didn't want to respond um, quickly. I wanted things to be thoughtful. I wanted, I wanted to respond through the peer review process because, mm, yeah. you know, when the, when the mob comes for you, the, the, the best way to respond is, is thoughtfully, but but if I took too long to respond, then I was obviously you know guilty of being a bad researcher because I wasn't responding quickly enough. So it, yeah. it really became impossible to have the very discussions that originally attracted me to science and academia. You know, my my advisor Susan Fisk, who is um, you know one of the best social psychologists in history, and, and brought so many people into the field. When I started working with her. It was it felt like a different world. And that was in, you know, 1999. Uh, you know, she would have debates with colleagues in her office about ideas like nobody was going, well, you're obviously a terrible researcher or you're a liar. Right. Because you disagree. With Heretic. Yeah, totally. And, and I, you know, it's, I loved the, the model that Susan um, supported and, and sort of put forth for her lab and anyone who worked with her as a collaborator was was always, you know, look, if someone writes and says, hey, we, we tried to replicate that or we did a similar study and found something different, the right response was fascinating. Let's work together or let's let's be closely in touch to figure out what's actually going on. What is this phenomenon that we're studying? Where are the where are the walls? What What's what strings are being pulled. So it was never, it wasn't even adversarial. Um, it was, it was. Dare we like, say collegial? We love, we do. We love <laughs> yeah. thinking about these things. We love studying them. Let's think together about how to study them better rather than you obviously are, you know, either a bad person or, or you're incompetent. 
Yeah, yeah, I had that. I had that very experience. Uh, even reading Yuval Harari's *Sapiens* and *Homo Deus*, and you know, and then I had very smart friends who just sort of just dis dismissed it out of hand, like, "Oh, he's oh, a futurist, yeah. cyborgy, somebody or other." And I was like, "I don't know," but all I know is that he's a good writer. He tells a good story, and I appreciate hearing the the you know the, the garden path he took me down. And it doesn't need to mean that chapter and verse I agree with. It. In fact, many of the things that overlap with my grad work, I flat out disagreed with. And it didn't change my appreciation for him one whit. You know, so it's like nice you're out there in the constellation of ideas, you know? But exactly. And and but but isn't that I mean, you there are so many things you just said that that I want to grab onto that are what I'm thinking about now in this, mm -hmm. you know, context of this new book, Bullies, Bystanders, and Bravehearts. But but the one is the first thing you said was that they said, well, he's a this and you're a that, right? That immediately you again, you get assigned to a category or a camp. You're like, wait a minute, I'm can I not take this as a collection of interesting ideas and decide which ones I, you know, find more compelling than others? Um, wh why on earth would I have to subscribe to an entire, you know, set of beliefs that allow allow me no room for exploration, for intellectual exploration? It's and I same yeah I've I've heard the same kinds of responses to to any book in the you know in in social science sort of nonfiction that does re really well, you know, it's either, you know, people are either allowed to embrace it fully or it has to be fully dismissed. Mm -hmm. yeah. You cannot be anywhere in between. You can't say I really like, you know, and, and let's go back to sort of where I think it started to turn in that direction in this domain of social science. Mm -hmm. And I would say it was Malcolm Gladwell's success. And, you know, either you, were Gladwellian or you were anti-Gladwellian, right? So you couldn't say, look, he's got Meaning to... as the genre or specifically him as the author and thinker? Because um, it's well, become a trope. The same, the same way TED Talks right, have become an entire yeah. calcified style, Gladwellization of like, we're going to, along the way, we're going to meet a fireman and a school teacher and a neuroscientist. Right, and you know, right. I was wondering, like that whole discursive, like rambling mm -hmm. narrative through a bunch of okay, little there's, vignettes. There's the stylistic stuff. And, and, and I'm going to say that, I, I, that, that set that aside. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just more of the sort of he's 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 taking real science mm -hmm. and he's he's interpreting it and he's putting forth some provocative ideas. And um, style aside, if it makes you think about something in a new way, is that not a good thing? Yeah. Right. But, yeah. but instead, I, I, always, I always think it's, it's, it's not is something categorically forever true. Is, is, is it helpfully wrong? You know, like like in grad school exactly. in Boulder, right? I mean, like studying uh, like environmental history, history of the American West, like Frederick Jackson Turner and the frontier thesis. It shows up in Schoolhouse Rock. It was disproven within the field decades ago. It still hasn't gone away. Neither has the triune brain or the bicameral mind. These things are these are compelling ideas that crumble. Neither is Joseph Campbell's monomyth, for fuck's sake, right? I mean, none of them within their disciplines actually continue to hold water, but they become the springboard against which people refine and iterate and pursue the lineage of the dialogue. And you look at those depth charges into the conversation and they have had asymmetrical impact. And so it's sort of me, we want to be able to celebrate, is it what's the impact on the collective thought pro, con and sideways, not just are they indefinitely defensible? Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. And 
and I think, can we not sort of celebrate thinkers who, who put those kinds of things into the world, right? So, so even if they end up like the, their sort of core thesis is wrong, um, mm-hmm. they made a, many, many people think about this topic in many new ways, right? Sort of it's, it's, it's exponential. Mm-hmm. And rather than say, oh, well, that, that guy was, again, either, it's, it's either they were incompetent or they were dishonest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, are they directionally yeah. accurate and helpfully wrong? You know, exactly, exactly. Yeah, then that actually, I, I wonder because I had to lay this out in in my new book, which was um, we were trying to do a combinatory study on embodied cognition for peak states, trauma, and relational connectedness, and we were using and 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 I had to. I was like, well, this does not work in a double-blind placebo situation because any if you're doing a multivariable intervention, which would make sense as humans because we're complex and there's lots of tools to play with, then no singular element is likely to push itself definitively above the placebo waterline. You really couldn't back that out from statistical noise. And so what instead, if you, if you say double-blind placebo-controlled, awesome methodology, especially for singular interventions in tech, with technology or pharmacology? Great, it has its place. However, when we're trying to do the human thing, and that's true with power poses, it's true with a million things, right? Can we just maybe go the other direction and have like the kitchen sink method? where you basically, you throw everything in that has an evidentiary basis for it to be a, def- a, a reasonable protocol to test, get the desired result. So now you have both the uh, you know, interior and exterior observable there, there. Measure that and then back off on your interventions one at a time until you just get an undesired drop off in efficacy. Yeah. And now you're in this, because now you actually, you, you, you found the thing that you, was, you were interested in in the first place. Right. versus trying to incrementalize your way there. And of course you never do because we're not atomized and fragmented critters. And so what, what, what did you decide? What was, the, what was the response? Well, I mean, we basically, because, because you know, we, we did an informal pilot study with 12 couples being able to do what we, we basically laid out the hedonic engineering matrix. And we're like, here's all the different ways that you can affect cortisol. Here's the ways you can improve vagal nerve tone, oxygenation, um, pre- decreased prefrontal cortical activity, increased delta wave states, resetting of the body brain. And here's this menu. Here's a baseline protocol, mix and match, and then do like the Hopkins uh, MEQ, that mystical experience questionnaire. Do a flow, Susan Jackson's flow scale inventory. So that's your peak state measures, both in, you know episodic like flow states or or monumental like a like a true mystical experience. Have your trauma measures with the I think it's the PC PCL five. It's the it's the equivalent of the CAPS one, but it's the self administered one, um, as well as the positive negative panis scale right that positive effective uh, one mm-hmm. and also the intimacy of self with other so like how connected are we how much and, and, and hrv like resting hrv overnight so we could basically say look here's six metrics in three categories peak states healing and connection and can we just see in conjunction with journals and and, and subjective self-reporting what appears to emerge so that's that that was our initial wonky pilot, like never would make it through a peer-reviewed gated process, but it was a proof of a concept and the establishment of a rubric that others could then go to. You'd obviously want control groups, you'd want a gajillion other things, but we just wanted to see if there was a there there. And the results were fascinating. They were actually, there were higher peak states, higher instances of mystical occasions than the psilocybin studies at Hopkins. 
That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you, you're coming from these sort of, where you're, you're integrating different, um, different approaches, right? Right. Some are more, um, exploratory, uh, the kinds of, the kinds of approaches to, can you see me? I mean, did we just get cut off? No, I got you. So, okay. Really wonky happened here. You're okay. So you're, let me back up. You're integrating approaches that come from more of a kind of like a sort of, um, startup perspective and, and with approaches that come from, acad- from, from academic labs. Is that right? I mean, well, I mean, again, I actually ended up having to like coin a couple of terms, I guess. I mean, I'm sure maybe they're out there, but like the things that it occurs to me is what are we doing is sort of neuroanthropology and culture architecture. And because basically the neuroanthropology is, can you, can you combine the fields of history, optimal psych and neuroscience and find customs and incidences in the ethnographic literature of people doing interesting things that you're curious about, understand underneath what the mechanism of actions always were. And then once you understand the mechanism of actions, now you've got the building blocks to seed and create or instantiate new social, cultural, interactive experiences going forward. So you take, take for instance, like saying, saying the Hail Mary. Right. You're like, oh, that's fascinating. Like Hail Mary. It's, a, it's an experience of reverence. We did it in grade school, blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, oh, so for thousands of, you know, for a couple of thousand years, people, particularly women, but all, all sorts of folks would come into a dark church. They would kneel, changing your posture, changing your respiratory access, all these kind of things. They would light votive candles. There would be incense. There would be a, there would be a saint that they would be praying to you, and often iconography of the Virgin Mary. And they would do, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with blessed art thou among women, blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, you write that whole bit, nine seconds long, nine hertz. And you basically have a nine hertz respiratory cycle and training you into alpha waves, right? With iconic imagery, with all of these things, with a rosary where you're offloading conscious, conscious awareness and counting. And, and you've got the rosary where you're just offloading it, moving it through your fingers. So you've, you've, you know, you've done a workaround of your default mode network, right? And you're in trading into alpha and you're doing that. And you're like, fucking fascinating. And, 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 and even didgeridoo playing, right? The whole idea of didgeridoo, didgeridoo playing, sending and, you know, sending you into ancestors or dream time access. And you're like, oh, okay. So you're blowing on this thing. You've got, you've got circular breathing going on and you've got massive vibration of the, of the digit itself, which then translates back up into the bones of the sinus cavity. And then like the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, right? Did all that fascinating research on nitric oxide production going up 15 times when you breathe through your nose and vibrate your nasal cavity. And so you're literally, you're out there under the stars and, and then Herb Benson's work at Harvard, right? On nitric oxide, the bliss molecule, you know, all of that. And you're like, oh shit. So that's how you get into green. That's how we get into dream time. So it's a state induction tool. So who is the we in your, when you say we're doing this, who, who is the we? Yeah, just the, the organization that I founded called the Flow Genome Project. And so basically it's just, um, just you know, been curious about really the intersection of those things, the sort of the neuroanthropology, culture architecture, and then effectively what, is, what are the tools for radical neurophysiological psychosocial reformatting of the human self-system. But how, and how do you get how do you get this out? I mean, to to what extent are you getting getting work out through peer review versus? Um, um, oh, you know? 
none. We're not playing that game. Yeah, I left academia. I'm far okay, more interested, that's, right? That's, so can, can we just talk about that? Yeah. Right, so, so anyone listening to this, I mean, this is you know, pretty high level in terms of, of, of uh, the amount of, you know, sort of foundational knowledge that you might need to have to, to follow what you're talking about. So I'm assuming that, I get that all the time. People are like, what the fuck did you just say? Yeah. Who do understand what you're talking about? But, and, and, but, but, um, this is obviously really interesting, um, and, and important and, uh, yeah, pulling from so many different areas, do you, but you don't feel thwarted by the fact that you're not going through the peer review process? No, because, I mean, A, it's just, it, this is closer to like Elon Musk kind of territory of like you don't go to GM to build the electric car and you don't go to NASA anymore to get to Mars. Okay. So, so I just think that there's A, um, I'm, I mean, I just, I stepped out of academia. I was all but done on a dissertation at 22. And I was like, and I was like, huh, I think I only really wanted that. I was like, I definitely don't want to be in basements looking at tax records for the rest of my career. I love history, but I'd just as soon read amazing historians than be one myself. So, and, and then I was like, well, I'd, I'd way rather go put points on the board um, and, and let's go see what's possible with the gloves off um, versus marching through the, politicized gatekeepers um, because you know you spend 90% of your time citing all the references the historiography the lineage who said what before you and then maybe in your closing paragraph you get to tentatively point the direction that you were actually fascinated in all along you know and never get to stick the landing so um, we just went and started trying to stick the landing and just see so you know. do you have to go through gates i mean you talked about gatekeepers are there gates that you have to go through or, or i just mean my not? editor's reading the manuscript right now and who knows they'll probably run it through legal but i mean basically we took the route of like james fadiman you know when he did the stuff at stanford with microdosing where he's like okay look this is we're, we're saying here is a potential protocol it is elective and opt-in you need to be on your own recognizance so if there's any moral legal ethical spiritual cultural or professional questions you are sovereign in those choices and don't wade into the deeper end because we literally broke out columns like mild, medium, spicy. We're like, you know, depending on how you want to play and how robust interventions you want to enact, you will probably need like Dan Savage, you know, the, the relationship advice guy, right? He talks about good giving and game you know, mm -hmm. the three G's for, for a good relationship. And we talked about like the three C's is you want a physician, you want a functional medical doctor who is curious, courageous, and connected and is, is willing and able to write you off-label prescriptions for a host of schedule three, four compounds. Once you can do that, you have access to oxygen, you have access to carbon dioxide and oxygen, you have access to nitrous oxide, you have access to oxytocin, you have oxytocin, ketamine, nasal sprays, you can do all of these things street legal and with your, with your medical oversight and then combine those with other interventions and it's more than enough to provide epiphanic breakdown, cathartic release and integration and, you know, measurable and, and, you know, and quite profoundly informative peak states. So if you're not going through the sort of traditional um, system mm -hmm. to, you know, shape sort of medical interventions, mm -hmm. do, do you see the world changing in sort of how medical interventions can, can be uh, developed and, and actually implemented? Is yeah, absolutely. 
ideas that are not coming through the traditional um, um, system. Uh, how do we how do we get to them? How do we get them to the masses? Well, I mean that that is the whole point of this book I'm writing, which is like we're almost out of time, folks. We are being fractured by grief and trauma. We have to level up our ability to have global centric perspective to solve complex wicked problems, and we are choking on our undigested grief. So. What, what right? What is what is a groove and reconciliation committee? Right? How do we have like batch forgiveness that we can actually defrag our nervous systems and recommit? And how do we take stands for fundamentally what you know MLK called soul force? You know, and what what is that experience in a human that provides you with connection, clarity, courage, right? And lets you step up. And you know, your book the, it's beautifully themed, right? Bullies bystanders and brave hearts or how do we get the people off the bystanding and into their brave hearts that's it right that's right but so my mind is kind of blown because you're sort of doing the you're, like you're doing the research in, in my sort of fantasy way of doing the research and you're i know this is going to sound strange but you're talking about it in a way that's so comfortable and I'm, I am having the, all of these sort of experiences of self-awareness listening to you because I'm noticing that, oh my gosh, he's not afraid to say these things. I'm saying I'm all the quiet parts out loud. I mean, yes, it's... it's yeah, we did this and this is what we found and it may or may not be right, but there's obviously you know, all of these moving parts and, and they matter. And guess what? We need this stuff now. But you're saying it without fear. And the... the the thing about being, you know, coming from academia and spending most of my adult life in academia, you know, until a couple of years ago, and I'm still not really out, is that... <laughs> you you sound like Michael Corleone in The Godfather 3, you know? I mean, but academia is a, is a place that, that, that's, that's um, set in a scarcity framework, yeah. right? So, so people are competing for limited resources. They're very aware of it. It's very hierarchical. You know all these things. But all of those things are not just affecting how many hours people work. They are affecting the questions that they ask. 100%, and, including uh, grant writing, the conventions and norms, what's in your department. Yes. Exactly. And, and, and how, 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 how willing they are to get those ideas out there, even if they're not fully baked. And I, I'm not, I don't mean half baked in the sort of like, uh, that's a silly idea that you came up with at two in the morning in your dorm room, you know, after smoking pot with your friends. Like, I mean, they're, when I say not fully baked, I mean, almost nothing in social science is ever going to be precisely right. So nothing is ever fully, fully baked. Right? Yeah. Change, the world changes. So you're getting these ideas out there with, without fear. And it, it just makes me recognize the extent to which people in academia are, are, are just, you know, sort of limited by fear all the time. Yeah. And the extent to which that is limiting us as humans from, you know, you, you've used some different sort of terms to describe this, but from getting to this point where we're moving beyond trauma and grief to a point of clarity and connectedness and courage. Is that right? Clarity, connectedness, courage. Yeah. But, but we're not getting there. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to, sorry, is this terrible for your podcast that I'm, I'm. Are you kidding? This, this is now? beautiful. Like, 
Fucking hey. I mean, look, look, all, all I get to do on, in, in this program is have the conversations with the people who light me up and inspire my thinking. So it, I'm, well, this is what I do. And I'm so I, I'm not a fearful person. I don't believe that I am. Now we get into sort of disposition, personality versus, you know, yeah, there's situations in my life that have caused me to be more fearful. I do not think I'm dispositionally very fearful. I think I'm a pretty big risk taker um, and I, I can be pretty outspoken. Mm-hmm. But you're you're talking in a way that's so free and that makes me almost want to cry and like par- partly sort of out of a sense of loss and partly a sense of hope mm. that, that because, I, you know, yeah, I'm a dead. Nothing about me fits with the other things about me. And that yeah. makes people uncomfortable, right? I'm a deadhead who also was a professional ballet dancer, right? So deadhead, that seems like it, it's people equate that with sort of no discipline or rules. Mm-hmm. And ballet is all about discipline and rules, right? I'm an academic, um, you know, who learned how to do research in this very rigorous you know, particular way, but who also wants to be able to have conversations like this and do research in the way that you're doing research, which I'm not saying is not rigorous, but it's different. It's a different model. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's... we're just limited by not allowing these voices to be heard. And I'm not saying just me. I mean, there's so many people. Everyone has this voice. Yeah. I, I think and and, and who gets pilloried, right? I mean, I mean, you, you referenced Lisa Feldman Barrett, her, her book on how emotions are made. I actually wasn't even tracking that there was a lot of blowback on that book, but it makes sense. <laughs> you know, I mean, she was upending a whole lot of the emotion, the theories of constructed emotion and everything else. So like, makes sense. Nicole Prousey, who is, who is also going to be on this show, right? She's a Kinsey Institute researcher, has caught so much flack for her just open-ended and quite rigorous inquiry into human sexuality your your work which was wonder woman for fuck's sake like about as benign and empowering as you could possibly hope right boom um and so these questions these questions of how do we the title of your book is perfect it's it's the bullies the bystanders and the brave hearts how do we basically allow ourselves to speak with our truest and clearest voices. And, and I really appreciate your feedback that it seemed like I was just laying these things out. And I'm basically, I mean, this, the book that I've written is basically if, if, if Malcolm Gladwell was Aleister Crowley's ghostwriter, <laughs> this is what the book is. And, and, and in the last two years where I've been in the weeds and I like even in selling it, like, like making the proposal, my agent at UTA was like, recapture the rapture rethinking god sex and death for a world that's lost its mind like dude this is kind of edgy my 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 the 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 editor at hoppers was like yeah well title's interesting not sure if we're gonna stick with that and then like part three of the whole book is ethical cult building because you're like the moment you play with peak experiences and eroded boundaries and profound healing you end up with cultic tendencies don't Uh say you won't we do (laughs) you know and how do we do it well and of course, since then, we've got QAnon, we've got Nexium, we've got all of these things bubbling up. So I think everybody is much more aware of it. But I'll tell you, um, my wife would look at me sometimes and I would stare on, be staring at the ceiling in bed going, I'm about to write a book about what? Like, are you fucking insane? And now that I have, it all seems quite reasonable. <laughs> you know? But yeah, wow, you just again, you're pulling like all of these different things that I think about probably every day together 
um, into one conversation. So it's, it's a little bit overwhelming, uh, overwhelming, and it does make mm. me want to talk to you for 12 hours. And I just, I just want to clarify one thing about Lisa Feldman Barrett. I don't know that the book got much blowback. I just think she as a thinker has always gotten, gotten sort of, uh, you know, criticized for saying things are more complicated than you're trying to make them out to be. Yeah. And that is a voice that we need. It is a voice of, of, of reason and wisdom. And, you know, when, when this whole sort of methods revolution in social psychology happened and people were like, it has to be done this way, not, it has to be done exactly this way, not exactly this way, right? As opposed to, and she would say, wait a minute, if she criticized the methods revolutionaries, the they named themselves method, methods revolutionaries, then she was labeled a status quoer. Because if you weren't for this way of changing methods, then yeah. you were against changing methods, yeah. right? If you weren't for yes. that kind of updating, you were against updating. And she was not, as you know from talking to her, th yeah. there's no one who's going to limit her thinking or tell her it's only one way or, or another. I, so it was amazing to me to see somebody who's such a great thinker like Lisa Feldman Barrett getting that kind of backlash. I'm like, are you, do you understand this person's mind at all? Yeah. You should be so thankful that she's here. You don't have to agree with 80% of what she says, but she's challenging you to think better, you know, to think harder and more deeply. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you don't have to like her. And I'm yeah. not saying that. I'm just, you know, you, but she she is a gift. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and, and let's continue boosting the signal you know, and standing, standing up for and beside, you know, you know, colleague, colleagues doing, doing that hard work. And, and I think, I think there's a couple of other things. I feel like from the science realm, there is the incrementalism, the absolute cautious incrementalism of the double blind placebo control. And of course, uh -huh. if we're only testing an element of what is ultimately in irreducibly a combinatory process, you're never going to get very far. You're always going to get weak signal. And then alternately, you have the, let's just say, the kind of traditionalist religious approach, which is often um, working backwards from the epiphanic insight of a founder or original elect. And we haven't given you the opportunity to recreate that experiment. So like we have weak sauce, what Michael Pollan called placebo sacraments that don't yeah. get the fucking job done. They do not set that burning bush on fire, right? And yet you got to take our word for it of what it all means but you can't go back and replicate or validate the experience yourself. Right, so right. both disciplines are broken, right? But, right. and this, now this is just such an awesome layup transition here, which is the part of our, or part of my just, I guess, just balls out willingness to do these things is this is all reverse engineered. We've already been getting to the places we're mapping. So we're not wondering what it might be if we, if we happen to get the combination locks right. And because you have a deep somatic embodied sense of your ultimate destination, the, the reverse engineering is, is dead simple. And, and you can shuttle back and forth between the experience and the incremental building blocks. And all you're doing is just, you're just behind your shoulder building the bridges to get, to get more people to the promised land. And of course, ta-da, no surprise, right? Um, for me at least, and I think we shared some time, we might have even overlapped in Boulder, we definitely overlapped some dear friends and stomping grounds like the Mountain Sun yeah, Pub, that's right, that's right. That's right? right. Um, for me, I, we found ourselves um, initiated into coming out to grad school. I'd seen Jeremiah Johnson, that Robert Redford film, and I was like, where are those mountains? I was like, I'm not going to New Haven. <laughs> you know, I'm going to Boulder or the University of Washington to study with Richard White, who was my other hero in, in American history. He, he's now at Emeritus at Stanford. And 
and suddenly we got just inducted into an action sports, psychedelic, new grass, grateful dead, mountain tribe. And there was no middleman. There was no gurus. I mean, like the West Coast where everybody's following some cheesy fuck on Instagram. You're like, there was none of that because yeah. you Telluride Bluegrass Festival, full moon mushroom yeah. gatherings, go out in backcountry, ski, kayak, rock climb, risk your life. Sometimes people die. So Kali was present, you know, like absolutely. There was the, the, the ruthless feminine of a mother nature that kept you honest. There was ecstatic communal celebration late night, you know, and there was epiphanic relationship to psychedelics and entheogens in, in connection with the natural sublime and in connection with this beautiful evolving art form of improvisational Americana music. And like, I'm, and looking back, I'm so grateful because it skipped so many cul-de-sacs and dead ends, like cults and gurus, like magical thinking, like, like nature kept you sharp. If you fucked up, you couldn't, you couldn't fake it. You couldn't say, I'm a woke burner because I've got a bindi and a headdress. You know, it's like, did you or didn't you get up that 14er and back? Right, right. So, so that, right. it feels well, like a Whitman-esque Ken Kesey to Gary Snyder. You know, like there's a beautiful lineage of the natural sublime and wild embodiment that goes back to like the Great Awakenings. You know, like the tribal stomps in Appalachia, like it just feels so good. So talk to me. So, so you have gone on the record uh, as, as, a, as a dead head. Um, sh share with me your experience in that community and how it has informed or inspired um, what you've been looking. I mean, essentially, I think you've been working backwards, too, right? You've been working backwards from, from those moments. And I really have. It's, it's, I ended up. Oh, sorry. Hold on. Birdie. It's a window. Sorry, there was a bird all. Oh, beautiful. Trying to know, you know, I almost flew into the window. Hmm. Like, no, it's it's a window. You can't come in through here. So, uh, okay. So, um, yeah, I've had, I've always had just so many different interests, and and I've always felt that people people that made people uncomfortable. They're like, well, what are you? Are you this or this? And I, you know, I keep coming back to this categorical thinking, but I yes. think it's just massive trap that we're in <laughs> and and i'm like i'm i'm both i'm both and and also i'm i'm something in between those things right <laughs> or among all of those things so um you know i started at syracuse i wanted to be a broadcast journalist and i was a freshman at, at syracuse and i i hated it it was mm. you know 65 percent of students were in the greek system like awful things happened there. I mean, awful things happened to me and to my friends there. Mm. I was a deadhead who wanted to be a broadcast journalist. Like already that wasn't really lining up because I was never going to be a news reader, right? Like that was not going to be, I was not going to be the one reading the news that somebody else wrote for me. Um, but I, I might have some ed editorial asides that are going to get me in trouble. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so so I, I I started there, and and you know my first you know month I went off to see a bunch of dead shows at Madison Square Garden. You know, like I, I missed classes, and and I really I think that I felt so much like an outsider that I defined myself in opposition to what I thought that place was about, and um, 
and met some really fascinating people too there like, you know some some pe- the other people who saw themselves as outsiders in lots of different ways so we were definitely a sort of you know island of misfit toys mm-hmm. uh but i decided that i needed to get out and really i chose cu boulder because i really didn't have money and i had to pay for college um and it was less expensive and i i had never been there i mean i hadn't been there since i was a little kid and i just wanted to be somewhere beautiful um where you know the 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 greek system didn't sort of overwhelm the social life of the students and uh i didn't even know what i do when i got out there so i mean i i i remember driving over that sort of crest as you you know i guess it's oh, on yeah. route 30 yes coming in yes yes and the weirdest thing was that also my my high school boyfriend's identical twin brother was starting at CU Boulder at the same time and we ended up in the same um airport transfer van so he's with me and we're coming over the crest and i see the flat irons and i just like tears just started streaming down my face you know it's like this is so right for me um that's beautiful so, oh wow yeah and then I, the first week i was there i ended up going to see a jerry garcia band show at squaw valley so missed the first week of classes again repeated that mistake um, squaw valley that must have been a righteous show beautiful spot oh my gosh it was epic it was amazing we you know took we took the gondola to the top and ended up in this there's like we were in a bowl i recently found a video of that show the only video that i think exists and i was showing it to my husband because you know we both ski we love skiing and i've turned him into a dead <laughs> or introduced him to that world you know it, australia really didn't have much of that influence and he was looking at this show he's like this is like everything we love in one place like they're sitting in this bowl in this you know tiny stage watching jerry garcia and the, it was amazing um yeah so so the the, the deadhead world is like i've had two phases with it and i only realized how m- meaningful it was to me and how much it connected these different parts of my life recently you know i was you know i went to lots of shows i got on the bus in 1988 and had lots of friends who were deadheads and and hitchhiked and had no money and i i really did it full on the the full deadhead experience it was always about the community as much as it was about the music but i then felt that i had to abandon it because it wasn't consistent with my sort of desire to be um mm-hmm. you know a, a scholar yeah. and uh, and so i i let go of that and when i came back to it and it's i came back to it because you know friends said let's go see dead and company i'm like oh, i don't know john mayer i don't know <laughs> Just let me, I, I should I should just tell you that, that that I do now have a dog named Mayer and A Y E R. So my 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 opinion about John Mayer has you know could not have changed more than it has. But we went to see it. My son is now 18, but he was then what 14 or something and he is a guitar player, musician. He's starting at Berkeley College of Music in the in the spring. Amazing. Uh, he watched John Mayer and he had never seen it you know any any kind of jam band show he'd seen tons of live music but he was just his mind was absolutely blown and watching him watch John Mayer be in i mean like fully in the present like just just almost out of his mind in presence if that makes any sense oh yeah like intoxicated by presence um 
you, that's that ecstatic collective experience that you're talking about, right? And and something was coming out of his, you know, body and his guitar that that sounded <laughs> different from anything I'd ever heard him do before. Um, and and the, the the joy on the faces of the you know the the older dead members that are still playing with them was not in any way like confusion or you know or jealousy or who do you think you are they were they were vicariously ecstatic watching him be ecstatic and yeah. i was i was just like fully back in immediately it was like yeah. i am not we have to do this this whole bullying stuff was happening to me at the same time so you got to you got to sweat your prayers you got to actually come back and I love music so much. So to rediscover this at that moment was exactly the right time, right? It, it was like, this is who I am. And um, that is just fine. Like, I would much rather be this person than a person who's going to respond to the bullies as a bully. You know, I'd yeah. much rather just indulge this part of who I am. And then, you know, eventually I realized these, all of these things are actually connected. All of these parts of myself are not separate. They are, they're very much connected. Yeah. And, well, well, well let, let's, let's take a look at this because, you know, again, trying to apply that sort of neuroanthropology lens to something like to the phenomenon of a Grateful Dead show, right? And just to, because most people will have glib or sight, it's like, it's like Burning Man, no one's neutral on it. And, and, and a lot of, and, and those who know do not say, and those who say do not know, right? Right. So, but that said, right, that there, you know, and Joe Campbell actually famously I think he was on a panel with the band at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. And he, he likened it to a modern-day Dionysian ritual. And he's like, I didn't know, and I don't like rock and roll, but I went to one of your shows, and holy shit, you guys are doing the thing. And the thing was a death-rebirth ritual. Wow. And, and so many people these days are like, we need collective, collective intelligence and sense-making and all these kind of like fancy jargon-filled terms for how the fuck do we get our shit together and be better humans at scale. Right. In a nutshell. And they're all acting as if just because they coined those terms, no one's done it before. And I think and I think, again, from, from the sort of from the historical record, like Garcia and those boys put together a very intentional experiment starting in the mid 60s that coincided mm -hmm. with the introduction of the molecule LSD 25 as a serotonergic and, you know, systemic enhancer and the yeah. advent of increasingly high fidelity amplified electric music. <laughs> you know, and and they were aware, and, and you know, starting with Kesey's acid test, they were like, "What is this weird amorphous thing? The third, the presence, the collective, that sometimes seems to be showing up, and it sure seems way more interesting than the Rolling Stones or U two creating set lists and going out on stadium tours and singing, you know, making every gesture in the same way every night because that's where the pyrotechnics and the video screens go, and so." You know, it was a high risk, high reward thing. They're like, let's go down into the mud and see if we can pull up the lotus flower. And sometimes we're ending up just face down in the mud. But those nights, those nights where we find the unstruck sound, there, there is something quintessential about that moment. And, you know, and it killed Jerry, right? He refused, to, he refused to complete the messianic loop. He's like, I'm not the guy you're looking for. Yeah. Right? And there was this, there was this recursive, experience of a bunch of highly susceptible, highly in tune, mirror neuronally synchronized folks with a 
you know, modal six string bass, two drummers on a rhythm section and a guitarist, you know, I think Jerry was once playing on a MIDI and he was playing some Miles Davis stuff. And someone was like, Jerry, you could have been a really good horn player. And he's like, he looked at him, he goes, I am a really good horn player, right? And like those crystal quicksilver sustained tones that he pioneered and everybody from Trey with Fish or String Teeth, I mean, everybody in the space has tried to track down that tone because it felt like it was the carrier wave that you could then, especially in, in a psychedelically suggestible state, you could, you know, Dark Star or any of these songs that people put so much passion around, you're like, wait, the lyrics are weird. It's fucking atonal half the time. What, why is everybody so amped on that? It's not the song. It's that, that it was a carrier vehicle for a 15 minute kinetic improvisational meditation to God consciousness and back. You're like, Terrapin Station? Is that a place where turtles ride trains? Like, what are we talking about here? But it was, it was, it was the interiority. It was basically like VR before headsets. Wow. Yeah, I like that VR before headsets. But, you know, one of the things you sort of, wow, this, you, you say so much. It's, there's so many, like every sentence I want to, I want to jump in and, 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 um, and dig into that. Um, so I never know where to go. Just anywhere. You. And we can backtrack. We can do anything we want. Um, it's funny. I, you know, think about like, because uh, I think Jerry, Jerry was ambivalent in the 60s a bit about where he wanted things to go. And he also had a bit of a perfectionist streak. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember hearing an interview where he's talking about how Phil played something badly one night, or he thought he had played something badly. This is like 67 early. And he was really mad at him afterwards. And he realized that like Phil had had this amazing experience and the people there had had this amazing experience. And he was like, that was the very last time I ever got mad about somebody playing something in a way that I didn't like, like after a show. You know, like that was it, it was not about that. It absolutely was like, it doesn't matter if 70% of the time is in the mud, if the 30% of the time is this. And it's not just, it's not them you know, I wrote, wrote about this in my salon article. It's not just them being present with each other. Mm -hmm. It's about the audience being present with each other, them yeah. being present with the audience. Like this is the, the this gets elevated to um, a level of, of yeah, of, of joy, pleasure, ecstasy. I don't know, transcendence that, that, that is, that is unlike at least anything else I have experienced. And I think most people, who are at shows haven't don't experience that anywhere else um but there's a lot of room like it's it's left open for interpretation and and you know i i love you know if you said to me who's your favorite member of the dead i, could, I couldn't answer it but but for me i would certainly like i consider robert hunter a, mem a member of the dead and i love hearing robert hunter who for those of you who are not deadheads well, you may not be listening anymore, but if you are still listening, Robert Hunter is one of the <laughs> lyricists, and they do consider they did consider they they're lyricists, members of the band, right? Oh yeah. But Robert Hunter, one of the things that people people you know people are desperate again to know well what exactly did that song mean? You know, and you hear him talking about a song. He's like, what, what's that? Dark Star crashing? Da, 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 like what? It's 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 it means what it means, and and. You know, if you push him on, well, he unfortunately we lost him last year. But when people tried to push him on what a song meant, he was like, "I will never ever get pulled into explaining to you what each of these songs meant to me at that time because what it means to me is now different, and it can mean it is 
it, it would be it would be taking away from the experience of 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 the listeners to tell them what it means. It means to them what it means to them. Yes. Right? And, yes. You know, people. One of the things that happened to me after the te- giving the TED talk was that, and it you know it, it did go super viral. It's you know it still gets viewed like 10, 15, 20,000 times a day. Wow. And people will come up to me in an airport and say, this like, man, really touched my, the, 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 the deadhead music part of me so deeply because people would come up and say, they'd be crying, they wanted to hug. And, you know, this was pre-COVID and I was happy to, to, to hug them and say, I Back felt in the day. You, were, yeah. you were speaking to me. You were giving that talk. You were in my head. You were giving that talk to me. And I realized that it was a song, just like, you know, my favorite songs from high school or middle school. And, you know, you'd listen to them thinking, oh, this person is in my head. They understand me. Of course, they don't know you, but that's okay. It can mean to you what it means to you. So what it means to me, the story that in the, the, the specifics of the story that informed my talk are not relevant mm-hmm. to that person. And that's okay. It's your song. It means to you, it, to everybody has their own interpretation yes. and they all own it. And I am so okay with them owning it. And when yes. they give me their interpretation, that is an incredible gift to receive, right? To hear it. Yeah. This is what I hear when I hear your talk. That yeah. is why, you know, when I listened to Franklin's Tower when I was 18 versus listening to it now, I'm like, oh my God, oh wow, how did I miss this or that? Yeah. Well, it meant something different to me at 18. Yeah. If you, if you get confused, just listen to the music play. Right. And so, so that's the beautiful thing. Right. And, and, and because it felt to me like what they were doing was some version of quantum Cohen's, you know, they, they were, they were these, that they were these, right. They were these enigmatic Zen riddles that could only be unlocked in the now, in the dance, in the groove when it fucking opened up. And, and Hunter was so beautiful at that because for those who don't, I mean, this is, deep cuts, but basically he was the scion of a very literary San Francisco family. He grew up around all sorts of education. And Jerry famously would be like, dude, don't write me a lyric that, I, that I'm not going to choke on after the thousandth time singing this. So they had to remain inscrutable. That was their pact. And yeah. then they would come into music and into that moment and unlock. And you could absolutely go back into the parking lot and see which verses got put on t-shirts and bumper stickers, which be- and it became this living scripture of a Gnostic initiatory ceremony. And the, the archetypes uh, that, that Hunter drew from, which were, I mean, to me, it feels like the Arcana Americana. It is like a hidden secret Gnostic scripture. And, mm-hmm. it's, and it's not just the dead, you know, it's Dolly Parton, it's Beyonce, right? It, it, it's, it, it's, it's Lady Gaga, right? It's like any of these I'm downtrodden. The world doesn't fucking make sense. You know, these, this is my litany of woes, but, but here I am testifying. Here I am making art. Here I am rising up singing. Like, like, like that, and, and Howard Bloom, actually at Yale, you know, he wrote an amazing book called The American Religion, and then he wrote another one called Omens of Millennium. And he was just, he had a fascinating cut, but he's like, he's like America is a Gnostic nation that has forgotten that it is a Gnostic nation. It literally has this, it has this initiatory ecstatic lineage that goes back to the 17th century, right? It goes back to the Puritans, to the Shakers, it's, it's to the Mormons. Like we are a bunch of whack nut mystics that are, that, and heretics. Like the, the Catholic church, the Protestant church never would have let this shit go down. Everybody had to flee and try it again. And, yeah. and seeing, seeing the dead, 
as a part of that tradition. And it's always enigmatic, right? It, it, it's one man gathers what another man spills. If the thunder don't get you, then the lightning will. You're just like, shrug my shoulders, what me worry. It's antinomian as fuck, right? No one is going to tell you what it means. No right. one is holding forth. And yet, and yet, you know? But it's not not meaningful, right? Like, yes, no one's going to tell you what it means, but whatever it means to you at that moment is what it's meant to mean to you at that moment. Yeah. And I don't mean that it's written in the sort of um, religious sense. I just mean that that it it is what you need it to be at that moment. Um, It's funny. I grew up in Amish country. I'm not Amish. I'm Pennsylvania Dutch, but... You know, I grew up where, you know, I saw horses and carriages every day. It was not at all un- unusual for me to see that, to hear that sound outside of my house. And it's, you know, barn raisings where yes. a group of Amish men get together and put together a barn in a day. That is an ecstatic collective experience. Yes. It, it is the same. Like, it's, there are similarities um, across these things that I find beautiful and fascinating. And they might look very, very different to most people. But again, this is why I just want to get rid of all of these categorical boundaries that, that, that stop us from, from making connections freely and without fear. Like, why should we be afraid to make connections, to make these, to, to find the, the similarities across these things in order to get to the really deep kernel underneath all of it? Um, yeah, wow. Um, but like, can I just tell one story about yeah. my husband's first experience at a dead show? <laughs> Absolutely. Because it, it was really, it, it was, it was so. It, it, I saw some. I saw it through his eyes, and you know, it's so wonderful to take people to their first dead show, right? To see, and sometimes it takes, and sometimes it doesn't take. But when it does take, it's amazing. And so, again, you know, he's from Australia. He didn't really grow up going to a lot of live music. He's eight years younger than I am, so he wouldn't have seen Jerry live probably anyway. His first show is the last show of Fare Thee Well. So mm. it's Chicago. We are in the second row. And, in fact, in all of Jay Blakesburg's pictures of the audience, the one person you can see is my husband because he's wearing like a fluorescent running top and he's six foot three. And this was like my hundredth show in his first. And you can see him in almost every single one of those images. Nice. So I take- move over, move over Walton. Yeah. Um, although I know we always say, we call this, I've said to Jay, I'm like, these pictures are like fine, fine Paul Coster. Um, so it's sort of a joke, but um, so I take him to the show and He's a super outdoorsy guy. He is not in any way going to buy into one way or another of seeing the world. And I think he was afraid it was going to be too culty, you know, that he was going to be pushed to subscribe to a whole set of beliefs without letting, without uh, the allowance for freedom of thinking. And, um, and, and so we get there and we're, we're sitting and um, we, we had gotten a friend of ours had, had saved a spot for us right up front and so we got there very early and we're sitting there and and there's another Australian guy sitting behind us and he starts getting really angry at somebody else and he's 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 drunk he's angry and he you know I don't know Paul starts talking to him and he's the guy's like saying to him you don't know where I'm from St. Kilda like which is a 
a part of Melbourne that he apparently perceives to be more scary or something than the part of Melbourne that my husband is from. And he's like, okay, so you're from St. Kilda. And he's really angry. And normally I think my husband would have um, gotten really annoyed about this, that he was kind of a buzzkill and maybe hollered at him or something. But instead, because the vibe around us was like, hey, dude, like this is just not how we do things. Um, Paul was able to talk this guy down and it turned out he was a veteran who mm. felt very much abandoned by the system. And it, that's what came out. Like somehow Paul within a few minutes got this guy talking about, I mean, he was crying, like talking about how lonely he felt, how cut off he felt. And it was just an amazing moment where the support of the people in the community just sitting around us um, to rather than be angry at this guy, go, well, what's actually going on here? Just changed the entire experience for him. And, uh, you know, the way he saw the music then and the, the every show after that was so shaped by that first experience where it, mm. he said it brought out the very, very best, kindest, most generous part of him. Right, to be surrounded by that. And he was the one who, in the end, ended up sort of talking this guy down and mm -hmm. sort of back, you know, not, 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 I should, down doesn't seem quite right because it was more like talking him up and into mm -hmm. the experience. Yeah. Whereas he was feeling like angry, not because of anything happening there, but because of his life. And so, you know, th that really shaped the way he saw the experience after that, where it, it wasn't that he had to behave that way. It was it was that he felt supported and being generous, and yeah. um, and this guy felt that. Yeah, and and I mean that speaks to so much about like again I think if you if you juxtapose if you did a case study between like Joel Osteen's mega church and Grateful Dead shows and you're like okay we've got yeah. jumbotrons we've got light we've got you know or a Tony Robbins workshop right S same drill you're like these are all the techniques of ex ex ecstasy and, and catharsis and and when they work they create these profound group bonded communitas kind of stuff like victor turner writes about right and and what are the mechanisms of action what are the explicit and implicit modes of value exchange <coughs> like are you paying for a ticket and then you're welcome are there vips are there velvet ropes are there upsells are there cross sells is there a donation plate like how do we do the energy exchange here and then and then what is what is effectively the scripture the ethics and the metaphysics so like if we are having these peak experiences what's the metaphysics of our explanatory mechanisms right are these guardian angels is this demonic possession is this is this our own interior subconscious was i just on drugs right whatever am i empowered and i'm using nlp to you know shift my state and do these things what what is the ethics of like how ought we live based on this experience we've just had together, you know? And that's what I mean about like the lyrics showing up on bumper stickers and t-shirts and like, like they became, they became guideposts. There was always, you know, there, there was, right? There was a verse for every occasion to explain the vicissitudes of life. And, you know, and then, and how do we do this thing? And how do we bring folks on board? And you, you must know Robin Dunbar's work at Oxford, right? The one who famously yeah. came up with 150 people, Dunbar number, but, yeah. I read something on, he did a great paper on the San Bushman in Africa and trance dance and the idea wow. that the incidences of trance dance with, within the Bushman communities were higher during times of social crisis. So they intuitively figured, like, that's what I meant about, like, the Groove and Reconciliation Committee. They're like, ah, we're getting a little, we're getting a little salty. We're getting in under each other's skins. We need to wipe the Etch-a-Sketch. Yeah. 
and yeah, let's and do that. It's but these 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 um, these threads that you're finding through all these things. I mean, don't you feel a bit that we are um, we are experiencing a lot experiencing a lot of pressure to not make those connections right now? I mean, to not have these like this kind of conversation would not have felt dangerous to me 20 years ago, but it does feel dangerous to me now. Well, yeah, and I mean, this actually brings us up to your to your friend and colleague Molly Crockett, who's has done a bunch of work at Oxford and now she's at Yale. I feature, I referenced both of you in in Stealing Fire, the last book I wrote, because Molly had done work um, understanding those the the bonding mechanisms both at Burning Man, so the you know a, a descendant of the Grateful Dead lineage and community, but then also talking about political rallies and all these other kind of things where you end up with antisocial, not pro-social communitas. You end up with mobs, you end up with cults, you end up with the political rallies. And at the time, which was what, probably 2016-ish when I was writing it, you know, it was, we just kind of of put in a line or two, never understanding how metastasized those social technologies would become and how weaponized they would become. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what's your sense? Because I'm always humbled, like effectively, it feels like the only difference between brainwashing and alchemy is that one erodes sovereignty and the other enhances it. And really the, the, the technologies under the hood are damn near indistinguishable. Have you ever listened to Dean Del Rey? No. He's a comedian musician who has a podcast and does these really fascinating, I mean, they're mostly with musicians and they end up talking a lot about gear, but he's super smart and they have these fascinating conversations that go all over the place. And, you know, I could listen to those for, for hours. Um, um, can I, let's see, let me clear my head for a second and say, uh, I just fear I, the, the, the book that I'm, that, that I'm working on this bullies, bystanders and brave hearts, which certainly was inspired by my, my experience with the academic mob, um, mm-hmm. And, and seeing that that same, that the anatomy of mobbing is, is the anatomy of mobbing. It doesn't matter if it's a yeah. church or if it's academia or if it's, um, you know, uh, um, fans or Stan, Stan, Sans, is that the? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's like, weird grammatically, but I know exactly what it means. It's the same, My kids tell me. same process. And, and I guess what, what, well, I, one of the costs that I don't think people are recognizing, because because what you'll hear people say now is we actually right now need mob justice because things are so bad that the only way to to right some of the wrongs is through mob justice. And you know, I, I can argue against that from another number of angles. But one of the one of the one of the angles that I think people forget about is that it does shut down progress, um, scientific progress. Um, just, just sort of evolution of thinking. I mean, it, it stops us from advancing. So, aside from the fact that it's just harmful, it hurts people, and our kids see us do that, and they do it, and it's self-reinforcing, and so on and so forth. It also just we can't we can't actually fix the things that we want to fix, or that we say we want to fix, because we're not allowed to have those conversations about how to get yeah. there. We're not allowed to make mistakes. Even again, even just in conversation, we're not allowed to make mistakes. We're not allowed to say, "Well, now I wonder if this would work," because if if it's something that's you know uh, that there are sanctions against, 
uh, sort of, you know, uh, or, or uh, yeah, that the mob has decided is bad. You can't even say it. You can barely even think it. Right. You really can barely think of sure. it. I, I, I find yeah. myself as somebody who's studied racism and sexism for 20 years. And by the way, racism and sexism stereotyping is my main area of research. I came to study hmm. power because mm-hmm. of, of looking at all of these effects on on people who lacked power. Right. Is, is there some tool that I can give people now hmm. to help? Yeah, them? Yeah. So I'd be talking to a bunch of female MBA students about sexism. And and they'd be like, okay, so you're you're showing me a lot of data, you know, the, demonstrating that it, it exists today. What do I do at my job interview next week? Yeah. <laughs> be like, well, see you later, goodbye, good luck with that job interview. So what do I do? I I I, I want to give them some personal tools, but I'm not ever saying just because I'm offering you this personal tool that might work for you, that might help. I am not saying it's your fault or your responsibility to fix sexism. I'm just saying it's not going to change tomorrow. And I'd like you to have, you know, something that will help you to when you come up against it, if you come up against it. So I came at that from, you know, the study of racism and sexism and other kinds of prejudices. um, But I find it really hard to talk about those things now i i feel like there are such clear scripts about how and who talks about those things um that again it's 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 to me limiting progress yeah i don't know if you saw that study Uh, i think it was the university of north queensland maybe but it just came out in the last month about dark triad personality types yeah it's, it's really interesting, and I'm waiting for the backlash and the, you know, and, 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 and the this ongoing part of the conversation. But um, it was basically saying they took 500 U.S. citizens who held non-normative views, which at this point is almost a you know a, a null set itself. Which is, yeah. but it was basically saying it was people. it was alt-right identitarians, and it was social far-left social justice warriors, and then progressive center moderates. In, in the middle. And then they did the um, authoritarianism and dark triad of narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy or sociopathy, right? And what they found was that both extremes, left and right, strongly coded for authoritarian dark triad tendencies, where the folks in the middle who were like, I have my values, they're pro-social, they're human, and I believe everybody else should also have the right to theirs, tested out for none of them. And to me, that was just, you know, that was Yates's second coming in a nutshell. Like the best lack all conviction while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. And, and, and the ideas that, you know, and then I was thinking, the first thing that shows up is like the poster boy for exactly that. The dark triad hijacking potentially pro-social movements would be like Maximilian Robespierre in the French Revolution. I mean, liberty, equality, brotherhood, or humanity was as bad as pro-social as you could get, you know, and he outflanked Danton and these other leaders and and created the reign of terror. And it had nothing to do with liberty, equality, and humanity. And it had everything to do with a mad paragraph by a dark triad, toxic human. Well, this is where you get get into sort of, you know, Molly's work on virtue signaling and and, um, 
and and the use of that to actually you know grab power and and you know one of the things I'm, i i say at the beginning of the of 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 the book that i'm working on now is first of all our focus on the bullies is a little bit misplaced because i don't think very many people are what i would call principal bullies and those are maybe the dark triad folks that you're talking about calling them folks seems not quite right but the, yeah. the the dark triad people are what i would call the primary bullies and they will use virtues to 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 um to attract mobs to attract uh, um um mm -hmm. members and yeah. and and to you know to ultimately acquire the, the the power that they want or the um the the affirmation that they need but it's it's the bystanders who I call now, you know, many of the bystanders become, I say, accessorized by the prim yeah. these primary bullies. So you become their accessory because they're using virtues that you actually do care about and telling yeah. you, well, if, if you really care about these things, you need to do it this way and you need to get on this wagon right now. And if you're not with us, you're against us. But those yeah. people who are, you know, who are driving these wagons, they don't even often care about these things. They're attracting yeah. people who do and, and, and misleading them to believe that if they don't get on the wagon, then they, they don't care deeply enough. So there, yeah. and those people become what I call accessory bullies um, because they create a kind of, the primary bullies create a kind of um, mock, not even mock, a sort of a, a false threat. They, they, they identify mm -hmm. the other they have to choose specific people as targets because just like a specific naming a specific victim is more compelling in terms of getting people to give money, um, naming a specific you know um, uh, uh, traitor or cause of 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 the or source of the threat is much more compelling than saying there is a looming ambiguous threat out there and it's abstract. Yeah. So you you name the the people who are responsible and you stigmatize them you shame them you dehumanize them you make it okay to dehumanize them and then you also throw at them all kinds of roadblocks that are like denial of services attacks right so you accuse them of things they didn't do and they but are you're about to do right that's the classic yeah. sociopath move is i'm going to tie you with the brush fake news right whatever you're trying to steal an election like i'm not you are no and if they get the if they strike the first blow then your response to defend yourself in a reality-based format is now just lost in the fog of war and all the innocent bystanders are like it's confusing i don't know i don't want to take sides i'm, I'm going to stay no, out and this other the person the, the primary bully seems to be more powerful so i'm it's much safer for me to go with that person but these yeah. dos attacks like in my case the, the DOS attacks were, oh, well, there was an error in this paper and that paper, and she didn't say this the way the right way or that the right way. So it, it made it almost impossible for me to get other work done because I was constantly responding to these um, sham uh, accusations that weren't right or sham investigations. I didn't ac actually end up being um, experiencing that, but a lot of people who are bullied do experience these sham investigations. So they're having to put together a whole response mm. to something they never did. So first yeah. you dis you, you disable them so that they cannot demonstrate their confidence. But then you yeah. also use gaslighting and, and, and similar techniques to deny them sanity. So you have DOS denial of services and deny, denial of sanity. And so now That's you nice. make them look crazy.
right? You make them look crazy or paranoid or overvigilant or too defensive. And so now you've disabled their credibility um, as, as in their area of expertise or their, 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 the perception of their competence. And you've also dis- disabled the perception of their kind of trustworthiness and likability. So now you, yeah. they're, they're done in. But, you, but that is not happening through one person. A lone bully is impotent. Bullies require bystanders to become accessories. And that is the only way they get this stuff done. Those, those accessory bullies have to, have to boost their signal. If they're not boosting their signal, it's never gonna go anywhere. Right. Yeah. So, so, so then you've made them. You've made them. You know. Uh, you know. You've infra or dehumanized them. You have made it totally okay to attack them. Uh, and now you've got people who are fearful of not joining. So, you know, I can't tell you how many emails I got or messages from people going, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. Yeah. I know yeah. this is wrong and this guy's horrible, but I, 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 if I don't go along, if if I." If I stand up for you, I will have a target on my back. Well, it's like when when does that little red carpet at TED become a giant bullseye on your back? <laughs> you know, I never thought of that that of, of it that way. But as the red card, the red circle is the target, right? It's if you get enough views, pandemic. if you get enough views, if you're humble and you stay in your lane, you might just get an attaboy, right. you know. But if you blow up and you and you cross boundaries and genres then you get all the petty jealousies of your guild because you're not waiting your turn, you know, and then you get anything else from the randos on the street. And, and, you know, I have to say, like, I feel mostly um, warmth from people outside of academia. I mean, I I felt very much embraced. I think that people know that I am myself, that I am deeply, um, like, uh, sensitive and compassionate person. Uh, that I'm giving you exactly who I am, and that's what they see, and 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 so those interactions for me are mostly wonderful. It came from inside my tribe, you know that that's where the the punishment came from, and and I would say say a lot of I have talked to other um, academics who were also untenured when they gave very successful TED talks who had the same experience, maybe not to the same extent. But but I, I think it's it's not uncommon. But the, yeah, this yeah. whole focus on the on the bullies and well, what's wrong with them and 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 also what's wrong with the targets. So basically, when we look at bullying, we're focusing on the lead characters, and we should actually be focusing on the extras milling around in the background. Those yes. are supposed to matter. Why are they have, doing have that? Have you seen Have you seen that that essay that was making the rounds last year called the the Internet of Beefs? No. It's, it's hilarious and brilliantly written, but he talks about there's knights. It's called the, the Internet of Beefs, like everybody having a beef. And he, he basically breaks it all down to like there's the knights and this is the Sam Harris's and the Jordan Peterson's. And then there's the mooks and the mooks all orient around a given knight. So that's their fanboy standing thing. And then the mooks do battle with each other to try and outdo and parrot what the knights have. And, and the whole thing is this self-perpetuating shit show that actually has perverse incentives and rewards and yeah. just is a runner is a runaway train so so you know in, in this there's, there's, i want to go back to one thing uh, about the shows and the music but but in closing from this your work that you're doing here with bullies and the and really focusing on the bystanders too what is your hope out so we've diagnosed the problem it's pernicious and it appears to be intensifying what do you suggest is our solution so that people can find the decency find the humanity in each other 
source them the courage they need to to call a spade? How do, how do we stop the bully from catalyzing into social harm? So, you know, I'm already finding that just explaining to people that, that this is this is really a predictable pattern. Um, and 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 that you first of all you can identify it early on when it's going to go in that direction. Like what is a criticism and what is bullying? So to be able to 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 identify the bullying um, to prevent yourself from becoming an accessory. And part of that is do is just it's funny because I'm, I'm going to say that part of what bystanders need to do is less. But bystanders mm. don't signal boost. If you read some nasty tweet that's a, an ad hominem attack by you know someone who should know better um, that, that, that really has no substance, you really should not be sharing that. Um, or even if you see an attack on on somebody's work, if you don't really understand it, you shouldn't be signal boosting. Right. So, first of all inoculate yourself against becoming their accessory who wants to be used by bullies who wants to be able to say like yeah they you know i was i was a fool and they used me um so inoculate yourself against the things that they're doing to pull you in and then and then you start to move move toward what i call social bravery which is not as glorious as you know, physical bravery, right? So, so it's it's not as clear cut. It's not it, you may not ever in your lifetime be thanked for doing it because you are risking, you know, your membership in the in the group, right? You might be kicked out by for doing the right thing and standing up for someone. But looking at these like small acts of social bravery, like just simply, let's back to social media. Say somebody's being attacked. Um, you know, one thing to do is to rather than a, rather than do nothing, or rather than um, attack the attacker, just uh, affirm the person being attacked, redirect the, the the thread toward thanking them for something they did that that, that you admire, that you are thankful for, that you're grateful for. Uh, that changes the norm, the, or the perceived norm. So now you have uh, the the. If, if, if negativity seems to be the normative response, switch it to positivity, right? Don't switch it to negativity toward the, the attacker, switch it to positivity toward the target. And so now you're making that become more normative and you will see people begin to say, oh, well, that person said something nice, I'm gonna say something nice too. That's a small act of social bravery. A big act of social bravery is saying, say, when you see in your department that somebody's being mobbed out of a job and that they're becoming the targets of these DOS attacks um, to say, to, 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 to just say, um, I, I see what's happening here and yeah. I just cannot get on board with this. Now, this is, this is a third rail. And so you do not have to comment on this, but I will just opine for a second, which is um, in seeing what happened with Princeton over the summer with that mass kind of semi-force signatory on, you know, Princeton being a racist institution and blah, 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 and a number of professors back-channeling to the Atlantic and other places like, whoa, like to exactly to your point, I, I don't dare stand out. I don't dare such step aside. My sense, what I'm wondering is, you know, there's been ample documentation of the rise in college and university tuitions and in the last 20 to 30 years, the keep creating the country club environment, trying to lure consumers with cheap loans and blah, 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 but also this massive bloating of administrative stuff. And what I wondered if there has been a breaking in the norm 
that the people who, the, the provosts, the deans, the presidents used to have been academics themselves and are now professional fucking bureaucrats and their willingness to sell their stuff down the river at the drop of a hat, <laughs> right? And capitulate to completely unjust demands from the mobs feels yeah. like it's happening. And you can, you can nod, you can wink. I don't know whether, you know, if, if you've noticed that or, or perceived that, but that is definitely one I was wondering about because it feels like it is, it is the spineless bureaucrats who they're, they're not like the same with that. Was it UCLA or USC, the Chinese linguist professor, right? Who just got pipped for a homophone, you know? And you're like, this is silly. This is beyond ludicrous and insulting to the people you think you're protecting. And yet administrations are not taking principled stands for free speech inquiry, the academy. They're folding to Twitter. I find some of the responses, I just, I guess I'll leave it like just shocking by, by the people who have opportunities to not only be thoughtful, but to establish a different norm. Um, or to, yeah, I, I, I find some of these responses shocking. At the same time, I have to say, in my case, I found administrators at Harvard to be um, braver than, oh, nice. than um, and by, by the way, I, I, the bullying that I endured did not come from inside Harvard. I still found some of the administrators to be, here's, they were more, they were, they were more willing to believe that it was happening because hmm. some of them had either been targets of it. And that's, that's part of how they had sort of, um, they'd been very successful mm -hmm. and, and, and had been targets of, of something like that. Um, but yeah, they were more, they were a little bit more distanced from that just sort of like being in an academic department and mm -hmm. your main job being getting grant money and, and publishing papers. So I, I did feel a bit more, more uh, compassion from administrators, I would say. But I see, yeah. I, I, I also see exactly what you're talking about and I'm very concerned. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something that I was you know, instantly curious about when you shared your background as a formal ballet dancer and you also shared your experience uh, going to a lot of Grateful Dead shows and which is, you know, infamous for noodly unstructured improvisational dancing, oh. right? So, so, so talk to me, what, what was your experience like going from the hyper-structured, you know, black swan world to the rainbow uh, spinners of a show? How, what was that like for you in your own body? I mean, let's bring this back to Wonder Woman, right? What I you was I just love to move to music and so ballet, you know, I left ballet when I realized that, again, it was a world where people were fearful. Um, and, you know, they, 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 they loved their art and they wanted to do their art, but they were willing to, to kind of die for it and not stand up for themselves. Um, I realized I could not stay on that path. But still, in the end, I love moving to music. I mean, I burn, I cannot, and I, when I, if I follow the dead for a month, I lose 10 pounds. I just, I dance <laughs> nonstop. I could dance for 10 hours. It, it is, that to me is the ecstatic experience. And my movement, um, you know, I think I look probably like somebody who was a ballet dancer, but it's still all over the place. 
uh, you know, it's like I take up a lot of space. I use my arms a lot. I am so fully, you know, synchronized with the music when I'm, when I'm dancing. I just love dancing. And now I'm roller skating. I was a roller skating waitress for two years in college. And I think I told you that. And, uh, and that's how I met my friend who worked at the Mountain Sun. Because she always nice. was a roller skating waitress. Anyway, that, that, so now I've been roller skating you know, every day for hours um, over the last few months. And, and I, I, I do some roller skating to like R&B and soul. And, and I do some roller skating to the dead. And if you can follow me on Instagram and see what these different types of roller skating look like. But, um, you know, it's funny. Roller skating to the dead is pretty much like dancing to the dead. Everybody doing it looks completely different, right? Like there's just no one way to do it. Uh, yeah, anyway, I, I, it's funny. This is a time when I need dead shows more than ever before. It is yeah. so hard to not have that. It is so hard to not be able to connect with people, move with them, and um, um, get that sort of little sense of hope that I get every time I go to a show. It's really tough, and I hope that we can find a way. Yeah, yeah. Th th those are some of our redemption songs, you know. Oh, absolutely. And somehow we sort of dance each other home. We do. So, yeah. yeah, it's the medicine we need. Well, Amy, thank you so much. It's been it's been a far-ranging, super fun uh, check-in, and I, and, I, and I feel like we barely touched the surface. I, I wanted to talk to you about your the, your, your okay. conversations with Molly and the, and the and the juxtapositions between Burning Man and Dead shows. A, th a thousand a thousand uh, different lanes to go down, but but look forward to resuming this conversation uh, in the months and years to come. Likewise. This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Jamie Wheel and produced by Jacqueline Loera. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective. <laughs>